Welcome to the New Level Podcast, everyone. My name is Phil, and I'm your host on the show. And on today's episode, we speak with Elizabeth St. Clair, who's the marketing director at Bartender, a software from Siegel Scientific. So this company transforms data into the labels, barcodes, documents, and RFIDs that drives businesses these days. Elizabeth works with users, partners, and industry groups in sectors such as food, pharma, medical devices, chemical, and healthcare with the goal to enable consumer confidence, supply chain efficiencies, and regulatory compliance through deployment of AIDC, also known as automatic identification and data capture. So on today's episode, we speak about trends in the label software industry. We talk about everything from new technology to labeling regulations being implemented by companies like Amazon. And Elizabeth shares tips on how to adopt the software in your business and ensure that you're making the best out of the investment in your digital transformation. So lots to learn on today's episode, guys. Without further delay, I bring you Elizabeth St. Clair. You're listening to the New Level Podcast, where humans talk about automation. We bring you industry experts and share new ideas that help elevate your business. Join your hosts, Philip Aguib and Teresa Foreman on the journey of automation technology. Welcome to the New Level Podcast, everyone. So on today's episode, we have uh, Elizabeth St. Clair here from uh, Bartender, which is a software by Siegel Scientific. And I'm always joined by my awesome co-host, Teresa. Hi, everybody. Nice to see you again. And so welcome, Elizabeth, to the podcast. It's really nice to be here with you today. I'm excited for this. So are we. We're excited to have you. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. So so we'll just jump into the first question that we have here for you, Elizabeth. So most of our audience uh, is in the tech industry, but some of them don't necessarily interact with, you know, the production teams and the warehouse teams where we see a lot of the labels um, that uh, that we have, uh, you know, in the supply chain. Uh, so can you help our audience understand the importance of labels in the supply chain and where to find them? Sure. So Labels actually make the world go round, at, at least in my world, uh, and probably in everybody else's world. It's a, it's a little thing that you never think of, but it's mission critical uh, all the way from the supply chain, uh, from manufacture all the way through um, to end use. Uh, I like to start with a, a simple uh, example that I think everybody can understand. Uh, you go to your neighborhood deli. Um, and you ask for a kilogram of roast turkey. And they take that turkey and they place it on the weighing scale. So, okay, we know how much the turkey weighs. We have the price per pound somewhere. But all that all that different data, including a barcode that you can beep scan at the cash register, all has to go on that label. Where does it come from? So, um, you know, sometimes it's allergen data that goes there. Sometimes it's ingredient information. It could even be a recipe. So there are a lot of different things going into this data, variable data, dynamic data, if you will. So let's scale that up a little bit or a lot um, to, uh, say, aerospace manufacturing. So I don't know if you're aware, but um, Boeing and Airbus don't make giant airplanes. They take a collection of component parts and well, they don't mash them together, but they do assemble them <laughs> to make a giant airplane, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
they have component manufacturers all over the world. In fact, there's some pretty cool applications that I'm hearing about um, about sending um, sending uh, CAD files over to um, to Asia for 3D printing of the parts and including an RFID tag in them. Um, anyway, so you know they're assembled where the expertise is and where the price is right. So. An airplane, um, there's a lot at risk inside an airplane, right? There's human life that, that's, um, that's in its care every day. And so it's important that all the parts that we're able to track where the parts came from, you know, who manufactured them, when they manufactured them. Labeling contains all that data so that the parts can be appropriately um, assembled and then not only track throughout the supply chain, but track throughout the, say, the 30-year life of a, of a commercial airliner. We also see labeling is important. Um, you know, if you, if you go to your pharmacy, you get a box that has a little 2D colorful barcode. Um, that's a way to trace what's in that medication, where it was made, how it was made in case there's a, reta- uh, a recall. So, you know, what we're talking about here, we might talk a little bit about the, the UPC label that's on your, your can of Coca-Cola, um, which is a, a, static, a static barcode, a static label. But we're mostly going to be talking about dynamic labeling here. Um, you know, even, you know, it's right now it's the holidays. And so uh, the, the FedEx guys are really busy. Each one of those labels has dynamic data and and variable data in barcodes and uh, addresses and and all that stuff. So that's that's labeling is mission critical and it really does impact everyone's life, not just mine. That's fascinating. It's yeah. it's, it's probably absolutely- one of those things, Elizabeth. Sorry, Phil. It's probably one of those things that is so ubiquitous and it's everywhere we turn and we just don't even see them anymore. Do you know exactly. what I mean? Because they're they're yep. on everything. Right. Well, and and another thing that's I think germane to this conversation today um, is is the data carriers. So of course there's alphanumeric human readable text, but when we start talking about this kind of labeling, uh, we're talking about auto ID, um, which is things like uh, barcodes, 2D barcodes, QR codes, long barcodes, short barcodes, and uh, particularly exciting right now is RFID, which is exactly the same thing as a barcode, except uh, uh, you listen for it with a scanner. Um, and with barcodes, you you look for it with a scanner. So um, I'm, mm. I'm excited to talk about that a little bit, too. I like that distinction you made. You know, um, I've been around a while. So well, I remember when RFID came out and it was just so people were like, well, where is it? I can't see it. And you're like, <laughs> no, you you know, it's in this magical thing called, you know, called the air. So I like that distinction you're making between um, the the readable versus the hearable. Well, for sure. And, uh, you know, uh, I I know that every year for the past 20 years has been, this is the year of RFID, but I think it's finally coming (laughs) true. I think we're there now. I think it's uh, it's being adopted and uh, there are people are doing super exciting things with it. Yeah, I think you're for a long time. It was a technology in search of a use case, right? For 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 a long time, and I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. The technology was ahead of how we were going to use it. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and so so while we're talking about RFID, um, you know, one of the questions uh, we wanted to 
to ask for our audience is, you know, what are those trends that we're seeing in the supply chain labeling process, right? There's also, um, I'm guessing, new standards that are being implemented. There's also, you know, specific industries that might be adopting them early or a little bit later. Um, and, you know, all kinds of new technologies coming out. So talk to us about sort of what's happening in the space. Okay. So I, I, you know, I apologize in advance because I get really geeked out about this and I make it a little overexcited, but boy, are we seeing interesting things right now in item level ID. So, so what is that? Um, we're all familiar with the UPC code, you know, every can of Coke you buy everywhere in the world has that same code. Uh, Coca-Cola buys that number, that barcode from GS1, the Global Standards Organization. And that's just a way for everywhere you go in the world, if you buy a can of Coke, they're able to track it back to, you know, where it was made and what it is and have consistent pricing, et cetera. Um, So the thing about the UPC, though, is it's static for an entire SKU. so if if I, you know, if I went and bought a candy bar um, at my local store, um, the package is identical globally. Uh, item level ID takes that idea of a UPC a giant step further. Um, so if, if, for example, if you bought a can of Coca-Cola, um, you went to the case and you pulled a can of Coca-Cola, item level ID would have an individual code on that, you know, per each, per unit, per item, so that that can of Coke would have a different code on it than the can of Coke sitting right next to it. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Very cool. And and so, you know, it's interesting to me that um, there are a bunch of drivers coming together to enable this. I mean, because, I mean, if you think about it, how much infrastructure does it take to track every single CPG by unit in the world. Yeah. Um, so, but industry consultants say within the next few years, um, this item level marking and serialization is just going to be expected by consumers. Um, the trends driven uh, by three environments, tech, consumer, and brand. Uh, first, the tech. So smartphones are everywhere. Um, you and I carry in our pockets a computer that uh, has more power than powered the Apollo moon missions, by the way. Uh, <laughs> that was that was 30, 33,000 bits of RAM powered the Apollo moon mission. And uh, our phones have about 4 trillion bits in it. That's about 7 million times more. So we've got that infrastructure. Um, you know, a, a good example of this is there's a, a, a local tech company, a startup here in the Seattle area. Um, they're doing really well. They, they, they've achieved unicorn status, which means they have a billion dollar valuation. It's called Convoy. Um, it was started by some Amazon uh, Amazon alums, uh, one in particular. Um, it's an app for truckers. So um, it's so that, you know, outbound loads are always easy for truckers to find. Inbound loads, not so much. Sometimes they came back empty. They had to be on the phone with a broker. So this matches truckers with loads wherever they are. And um, I saw the founder, who's super smart, um, as you'd expect, talk about this at a conference a few years ago. And, uh, and what he said was that he'd had the idea for this for a decade. He knew this was going to be a thing. But it wasn't until the price point of smartphones came down low enough 
that every trucker in North America would have one in his cab that this business model became viable. So, um, so there's that. There's also uh, now we have uh, electronic and data infrastructure capabilities that support managing the vast amounts of data that this is going to take. Um, for non-tech drivers, uh, consumers are an unusual kind of animal. We're different than we used to be. Um, social theorists like to talk about the thin interface. And so what that means is the distance between the consumer and information is thinning. There's less in between the source and the recipient. So we like the ability to get our own information when and where we want it. Uh, for example, here in the U.S., when I was a kid, my parents watched the nightly news every day. Uh, we received our information about the day's events from a centralized source, um, a trusted source. Now, every morning, I roll over in bed and I boot up my iPad and I go to my news aggregator of choice. Um, and I read only the happy stories, or at least that's what I try to do. But I control how I receive information and what information I receive. So if you want a place to stay in a foreign city, uh, not long ago, you'd pick up a phone and call a travel agent who would find a hotel in the right neighborhood, right price. Now, I mean, you know, in the before times when we could still travel, uh, you pull up your Airbnb app on your smartphone, you take care of it yourself. Um, the thin interface, though, also applies to things like nutrition information. Consumers want to know everything about what they put into their bodies and into their families' mm -hmm. bodies. Um, access to complete allergen information saves lives. And mm -hmm. people also want to know about provenance. Uh, we don't want computers built with conflict minerals. We don't want to commit to the love of our lives with a blood diamond. And we want to know that our food is ethically sourced. Uh, here in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., we joke about wanting to know the name of the chicken on our dining table. But, you know, we actually do <laughs> want to know it lived a healthy life and was well cared for. Um, so the third environment, and I'm about to take a breath, I promise, uh, driving this uh, is, is brands. So with the decentralization of information we've been talking about, uh, brands are looking for a way to control the conversation. So a Harvard Business Review uh, published a study that said that while consumers and businesses used to rely on salespeople as trusted advisors, uh, most decisions are made now before the consumer or business even contacts the vendor. They do, they do internet research. Uh, so brands find this terrifying. Uh, have you seen some of this stuff on social media? You know, yep. my goodness. Uh, so for brands, the ability to select and disseminate product information gives them the ability to regain control of the conversation. Um, and, and they're operating in a world that's thinking about labeling in new ways. So the US FDA has said that web, web pages accessed by human readable or auto ID are considered an extension of the label. Um, and real estate on the label is precious. Uh, so being able to meet regulatory requirements for information, as well as things like allergen information, is key here. So now I'll take a breath. Today's episode is sponsored by Vantry Systems in partnership with Bartender Siegel Scientific. Vantry allows you to customize your label requirements for each advanced shipment notice sent to your trading partners. For all your EDI and API automation needs, visit www.vantry.com for more information. Now, back to the show. Wow. <laughs> I would have never thought that. I mean, obviously, with every with all the digital transformation that we're seeing, the labeling industry must be changing. I'm completely fascinated by this idea of like 
item level ID, like, man, where is this, where is this information being stored? I mean, obviously it makes sense, especially as people are more conscious about, you know, what products they're consuming, where is it coming from? Like that information needs to be available for the consumer, but like, man, to recall a product and know exactly which one or from which ID to which ID, you know, the batch, um, you know, uh, which batch was affected by it. Uh, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, and it's, it's really impressive. Yeah, it's getting so granular, right? And and to your point, like, yeah. you know, when digital transformation started and big data started, everybody was so overwhelmed going, why do we possibly need to know all this information about where this pencil came from or where, you know what I mean? Right. And and some somewhere the switch flipped and everybody's like, I want to know everything. I want to <laughs> know exactly absolutely right. everything about this yeah. pencil. And to... Bill's point, it's like, you know, that all that data requires storage. And if you think about, you know, the supply chain from tip to stern, like that, that is, that's an incredible amount of data. And then you get down to like lot numbers and, you know, it's, you know, it's not just that one pencil, right? It's the millions of pencils. And how do you get down to that one single pencil and where that came from? Or, or, or Elizabeth, the, the, um, the example you gave around allergens, right, particularly food allergens that can be life-threatening, I mean, absolutely you want to know everything about that cookie, right, and where it came from, and is the supply chain honest, and, like, what are some of these ingredients I can't even, you know, pronounce, and are any of them anaphylactic, and so, yeah, it's, I think it's just something we take for granted as consumers, and then that's why I love, you know, these podcasts. We talk to people like you, and I learn so much. And, you know, it just opens up a whole other world that, you know, the consumer base in general just isn't aware of. Well, and, and let's talk a little bit about our current environment. Let's talk about um, uh, the COVID vaccines from Moderna and Pfizer oh. and soon to be AstraZeneca. Yeah. Yeah. Um, each one of those vials has lot number, production number. Um, I am not certain, but I would guess that um, the at the at the case level, and I hear for the uh, the the one that needs to be stored, you know, at super cold temperatures, that it comes in a pizza box size container, the vial stew, um, mm-hmm. that contains 790 vials of um, of of the of the vaccine. My guess is that that has um, a read-write kind of RFID tag on the case level. So it's communicating temperature information throughout the supply chain. I know that, you know, we talk about, you know, why why do people keep talking about Bill Gates and the vaccine? Well, it's because, you know, his Gates Foundation has been distributing uh, vaccines throughout sub-Saharan Africa for the last, you know, 10 or 12 years. And one of the first problems that they uh, encountered was it's hot there, vaccines degrade under temperature. How are they going to know when something has, you know, uh, reached the point where it's dangerous? So Mm. there's a system, it's there's uh, green means it's been kept at temperature. There's yellow meaning that it might've dropped into, into a higher temperature than storage. And then there's red, which means it spent too long in a high temperature and needs to be discarded. So, you know, I would, I, I assume that since this vaccine is so uh, mission critical to, to to human existence, that 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 they're using a very similar kind of uh, transmitting RFID tag on that. So that would fall under obviously the the dynamic 
control, right? The dynamic data. Um, yes. and, and I think that's the part that's really fascinating. You know, the static data is, is, is something. Uh, I think it's been around for a little bit longer, but it's this idea that a, a, a label can be dynamic, that could provide dynamic data. That to me is, is absolutely fascinating. And the example you gave about the vaccine, it's, it's like so important. Like if that wasn't there, people might be, you know, administering a vaccine that isn't supposed to be given. And that can, that can, yeah, that can cost mm -hmm. lives. Yep. Well, and the good news, I mean, at least what's reassuring to me is that this has been done before. You know, the, the, so that label probably or the, the case probably doesn't also only have have the, the broadcasting RFID chip, but it's also each one of those vials is individually marked. That's the dynamic data um, that that the label carries. So it can be tracked from where it came. When you get your vaccine, they're going to record that number and that'll be associated with your health records. So if there's a recall they can say, oh, 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 wow, some people got sick and they were on this lot. Let's go mm -hmm. contact everybody who got that lot. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it is important. Um, yeah, and, you know, getting back to um, this, this uh, the more commercial, the more CPG. And by the way, CPG stands for Consumer Packaged Goods. I don't know if yep. I was throwing out an acronym that, that people weren't familiar with, but I want to make sure that's understood. So um, right now, there are several organizations that are um, working to implement item level ID standards because, I mean, really, if everybody's using their own item level ID taxonomy and syntax, then everybody's speaking a different language and yep. you don't have interoperability in the supply chain. So um, the two most prominent and well-developed schema now, though, are uh, GS1, as you would imagine, with their mm -hmm. digital link. And then not a standards organization, but an 800-pound gorilla that we're all familiar with called Amazon, um, that they're trying to become a bit of a, a standards organization with their uh, transparency program. So transparency was originally designed to protect brands and sellers and buyers um, from counterfeiting. Uh, manufacturer, manufacturer submits information to Amazon, including their vendor code. UPC, number of items to be produced. And then Amazon sends over a CSV file um, with randomly serialized non-sequential 26 character identifiers, one for each package. Um, and then software like Bartender encodes each ID in that CSV file into a 2D data matrix barcode, which is included on the package. It's affixed to the package either directly or on a sticker. Um, mm -hmm. Then the manufacturer scans each one with a special app and it sends that data back to Amazon. Um, so it can be tracked by both Amazon and the consumer through the supply chain, right? So Amazon knows what's, what stickers on every product. And then the consumer downloads also an app. And when they see a, a product, you know, they buy it through Amazon, they scan it with their smartphone and they get the provenance or nutrition information mm. or, um, you know, or, uh, or manufacturing information or allergen information. So, but what Amazon has done that I think is um, really interesting here is in order to make this program successful, every item that carries a transparency tag, uh, every UPC, every item on that UPC has to be individually marked. So 
if you sell, you know, say you sell vitamins through the Amazon marketplace, well, it makes sense that that would have an, the item level code for transparency. Mm-hmm. But if you sell that same UPC at Walgreens or CVS or a Kroger store, it also has to have the transparency code on it. So all of a sudden, uh, this this becomes a, a huge global deal. They've onboarded, I think they're up to 4,000 brands in Asia. Um, they made incursions into Canada, not uh, the summer of 2020, but the summer of 2019, as well as starting to make incursions into Europe. And uh, we're hearing from our European partners that um, they're selling a lot of bartender for transparency. So, you know, um, they're they're not a standards organization, but they play one on TV. They're poised to really take <laughs> over this space because everyone wants to sell on Amazon, right? Um, and then the, the other standard that I feel a little bit excited about, actually, um, just because they they uh, GS1 brought us in at the beginning. And by the way, we've also been working with with the Amazon since the beginning because they're our neighbors. They're just across the lake from us and uh, they knew where to find us when they wanted to deal with variable data. Um, is uh, the digital link standard. And so uh, digital link URLs can be accessed through a scanner on a smartphone or in some cases an app. So the beauty though of digital link is the data returned to the user is contextual. Now let's talk about dynamic data. This is a dynamic web-enabled code that refers the user to different data, depending on things like location, campaign, time zone, demographics, even even how it's accessed. Is it accessed via an app, via a browser? So let's see, a, a consumer who scanned a box of rice would likely see provenance, nutrition, ingredient information. They might also see a recipe or a coupon for a discounted uh, price. An Australian customer or a Canadian customer, a consumer, would see the recipe and metric system measures and the coupon in Canadian currency, while an American consumer would be delivered that content in English measures in U.S. dollars. So, okay, but it gets it gets more exciting, right? So then you're a retailer and you scan that very same code. You wouldn't see any of that. You might see a lot number, a calendar for discounts and promotions on the product, maybe even planograms so you can display the boxes of rice in a brand approved manner. Um, A logistics provider or warehouse could scan that very same code and access handling information or hazard information, although rice isn't terribly hazardous. Uh, Many CPGs like cleaning products really have the potential to be um, disparate things like rewards, care instructions, product registration, even POS UPC data that could eventually eliminate the need for a separate UPC code. Mm. Um, And GS1 isn't actually saying that that's their end goal. But most of us believe that that's their end goal is to have only one on-pack code and that the digital link code will replace that because it can do everything, right? Mm. Um, and so everything that needs to be delivered, every bit of information uh, can be delivered through one item level on-pack code. How exciting is that? <laughs> that's pretty exciting. And that's quite yeah. an undertaking, um, quite an undertaking, actually, at that yeah. level. 
and, and it, it seems it seems pretty future facing. But the fact of the matter is that uh, digital ink is out out in the wild and being used pretty successfully. It's it's one of the um, to me, you know, barcodes are 40 year old technology. They're not very sexy, but by finding interesting applications and how data and infrastructure hook up to these barcodes, you know, to the data carriers, mm -hmm. that's where the exciting stuff is here. So I have a question for you, Elizabeth. It's a bit of a um, good segue. You're talking about, uh, you know, just blowing my mind anyways about all the things that have to be considered um like like the minutia it's incredible and so what i you know the business brain in me is going well that sounds like a really exp expensive investment for um companies that need to either even just get to the standard let alone get past the standard so what what technology i'm interested in hearing what technologies um you're seeing companies invest in in order to do everything you've just described um, in the supply chain, in the distribution, uh, their their distribution processes. Well, and, and it goes beyond distribution and supply chain. I mean, I've, I've spoken with ER nurses who get a medical device and it's got like 47 different barcodes and, and in the heat of the moment, they don't know which one to scan. So, you know, if you can eliminate any question about where the information is and how to access it, um, then, then you're, you enable uh, critical care to be delivered uh, more quickly. Um, so it's, you know, and we're also seeing it a lot in luxury apparel because people want to know that their Louis Vuitton purse is actually Louis Vuitton. And, <laughs> not a knockoff. <laughs> right, and not Lou Vincent or something. I don't know. So, but okay, so technology, let's work backwards. At the end of the item uh, level ID chain at the consumer, we've talked about the key role that smartphones play, um, and enabling the consumer to easily access product data. Uh, but before the item makes it to the shelf, the code needs to be printed on its label. We've got technology that's really good at item level direct marking. Uh, for example, uh, use by dates and lot numbers, right? But creating a machine readable code uh, creates a tougher challenge. Uh, for a run of thousands of commercial items, uh, the ability to include a readable code on the prime label at speed, say using a FlexoPress, it's not so easy. But this is the eventual goal, that all CBGs will have item level ID of one standard or another intrinsic to the prime label on the product. And the prime label is the colorful label that has the markety uh, branding stuff mm -hmm. on it. Uh, for now, uh, many smaller brands are uh, printing the code on stickers and putting it on the packaging. Um, for companies that use this method, though, having impeccable processes and executing them impeccably is key to success. Because once you start having a sticker and getting, you know, you introduce uh, the opportunity for error, human error and and otherwise. And so, you know, it's interesting when we worked with Amazon, um, they were thrilled that they onboarded all these brands in China, but they were not so thrilled about the sticker and so uh, what we worked with them to develop was a, an in-plant process to print those things and to have them and use label applicators to get them directly on there, to include them in the prime label, uh, to integrate with the Flexo printing, uh, printing so, uh, process. Um, you know, labelers understand that they have data that they need to print. And so they right. need a printer. 
but it's not often until after they've chosen the printer that they it starts them. Oh, you know, I also have data I need to get there, but how am I going to get? What's the middle piece between the the data and the printer? So, um, label software like Bartender connects the variable data in the database to the printer. Uh, when our customers design their label, they don't put the data there. They put a variable data field that makes a call to the data. Um, just like in the deli, you know, making a call to the pricing database and and calculating the barcode. Um, so it populates the dynamic data fields so that by sending one label file to the printer, multiple labels, each with its own code, can be uh, printed on on one run. That's awesome. That's, That's awesome. Very well, it's, interesting. it's it sounds like there's there's a lot that companies need to think about when, you know, they're they're looking at their labeling processes. And it's good to hear that, you know, bartender can can help out with that. Um, I, I do have a question about, um, I guess, the uh, the way that the labeling industry is going to affect the job market, right? Because, you know, we, we're talking about RFID, uh, we're talking about digital transformation. Um, and, you know, this on this podcast, we'd like to talk about, you know, how, how is all this automation, how is this, all this technology going to affect us humans? And I feel like soon enough, and we're seeing this in the Amazon warehouses with the robotics being involved, um, you know, obviously warehouse workers, you know, we're hearing warehouse workers are working super hard, but at the same time, um, what are they being compared to, you know? So talk to us about how this digital transformation, specifically in the labeling world, is going to affect uh, these, these warehousing jobs. So um, it's a hard question. And, you know, I, I think uh, I, I don't know if you're I'm sure you are aware that um, some people are floating the idea of a universal basic income because the robots are going to take all our jobs. Um, do I believe the robots are going to take all our jobs? No, because I think um, I think it's important. I mean, there are some things like I'm really glad that I don't have an accounting degree because, uh, to my mind, that's something that technology can do really, really well. Um, I think um, I think for something like uh, we're always going to need neonatal nurses because human beings need to be touched. So, you know, what's what's in between that spectrum of, you know, neonatal nurse and accountant? I don't know. I think we're all uh, it's we're going to shift the way though that that we think about technology and, you know, the dream is that um, you know, we'll all have more time for for leisure. I don't know if that that's the case. Sometimes I I get a little frightened, not for myself, because I'm old, but uh, for for my kids and my new granddaughter, uh, I get I get a little concerned about, you know, what their world is going to look like. But, you know, we've always been really good. We're human beings. We've adapted to, to new things. So um, what I'm seeing that's really interesting right now is we're in a time of economic downturn and my company is having a fantastic year. Um, it's, you know, we battened down the hatches and and prepared for. Um, you know, the worst, you know, to ride out a, a terrible storm like a lot of tech companies did. Um, but what we found is this really parallels what happened in 2008, the recession. Um, companies look to invest in automation technology. Um, they take the opportunity of the slower paced business environment to start reassessing systems and plan for and invest in the future. Um, 
So right now what we're seeing is, you know, AI and robotics are really cool. And I have a, one of my uh, one of our program managers is always keeping me up to date on what's happening on the AI. And it's really, really exciting. It doesn't it doesn't really dovetail at this point with our world too much. I mean, except from the angle of maybe vision systems for manufacturing. But um, companies are looking, you know, they're looking they are looking at the big things like AI and robotics, but they're really looking at the ground level, where it starts, how they can make the way they handle their data more efficient um, and leverage the power of existing proven technologies like RFID and barcodes. And so um, I think as companies look to be more efficient, you know, those big splashy initiatives, um, they're going to come, they're going to come in the next few years when, when the world gets right again, but for now, people are um, they're going down to a really, really granular level and figuring out how they can fix what's at the base of what they do. Yeah, that sounds pretty accurate. We're, we're, we're seeing the same thing at, at Vantry. Uh, people are taking this time to integrate their trading partners even more. Um, they're looking at, like you said, to 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 bridge the gap between um, processes in order to uh, be able to support uh, whatever there's to come in the future, and it's uh, yeah, it's an exciting time for um, for uh, companies in the technology industry, uh, and I hope that uh, you know, like you said, humans will evolve and make the best out of it. And I think you know the the whole AI conversation and what's that going to mean to you know are the machines going to take over? What's that going to do to the economy? I think you touched on, you know, the neonatal nurses and whatnot. There, there are, I mean, there's still also a lot of data that shows that some jobs, it's well, some jobs you really need to have a human doing, but even in, in jobs where automation can take over, um, where businesses are going to continue to differentiate is like, how do they add that human element to it, right? That human touch, like, you, you know, something that's very transactional and commoditized you probably don't, um, you know, care whether that was just handled by a machine or AI or whatnot, but there's still, people still want to do business with people, right? And so, yeah, I think the, you know, humans are going to evolve and the way we do business is going to evolve. Yep. And, and you know, right now in particular, it's, it's a time of dynamic change in the supply chain. Uh, COVID-19 <laughs> has made us reassess everything. Uh, online shopping, I mean, we always knew there was going to be uh, you know, uh, uh, an increase on on how online online shopping adoption uh, happened among consumers, but we're seeing a hockey stick. You know, um, it's it's right. unexpected. It's stratospheric. It's it's really um, accelerated what we assumed was going to take a decade to happen. Um, stresses to the supply chain. Um, they've made companies rethink that just in time offshore and lean manufacturing piece, right? Um, you know, we have uh, we have several uh, customers that that manufacture toilet tissue, right? Um, their facilities are tooled one of two ways to make toilet tissue for commercial use or for consumer use. And so, no, well, very few people are out um, using using commercial toilet paper. <laughs> you know, we're all we're all at home. And this is one of the predicates for the shortages early on is that the, you know, systems need to be retooled. Uh, restaurants, uh, restaurants are closed. Uh, you can get great deals on really nice wine from what I hear because they're not going to the restaurants, which is, you know, a nice to have. But 
early on, the big issue with dairy farmers is cows have to be milked. They were the milk was going into production for uh, institutional use. The the lines are tooled for giant containers, um, not small consumer level containers. So um, that's changed that a little bit. And from a consumer standpoint, um, consumers used to be really brand loyal, and COVID nineteen. Uh, finds that they're not necessarily so brand loyal anymore. They choose what's available rather than what they're accustomed to. And they expect they can get it on the same day by using their cell phone. Uh, maybe even uh, within the hour they can get it. Um, so, you know, one thing, and I think this is uh, what you were driving at, Phil, is that um, the digitization of the supply chain seems like it would really reduce the need for personnel but the fact is this rapid shift in how consumers think about shopping and online ordering means there's a need for more, not fewer workers at this time. And the, the thing about, uh, about the worker of today and going forward is they're going to have to be lifelong learners and intellectually nimble because uh, roles are going to change. Um, they're going to be able to use, need to use new technologies as they're developed. So, Elizabeth, you mentioned earlier, um, you know, there there are a lot of companies, you know, either being involved in the standards creation, like Amazon's an example, also a lot of regulations, I'm sure, um, for all the reasons, you know, there are regulations around a lot of these types of um, industries. So interested in hearing what label regulations are you seeing in which industries and who, which type of industry, which type of company is adopting the most advanced label template technology? And how can how can companies that aren't there yet, how can they get on board like easier and more quickly? Okay, uh, starting from the end first, um, you know, we, uh, my company has been doing what we do for a very, very long time. We've been around for 35 years almost. And we've been um, watching as the landscape has been shifting and adopting. Um, We've been helping uh, industries like, again, aerospace uh, adopt to uh, the regulations that they're um, beholden to uh, comply with. Um, UDI for unique medical device identification. We've been there. Uh, pharma, uh, their supply chain security and traceability acts uh, in North America, in Asia, and uh, in Europe that we've really helped, you know, and it's really, it's not, uh, I mean, for us, it's not even so much industry related, although we do have that industry expertise. That's actually, I was hired to come in and, and learn about the different industries and how our technology could be applied to them. Um, so that's been really cool because I learned something new every day. I mean, right now, uh, one of the things, one of the, the exciting, exciting, Exciting industries that we're talking to quite a bit now is the cannabis industry. Um, this is, uh, I, and you know, congratulations to Canada for having the most impeccable federal uh, legislation there uh, globally. It's it's a wonderful thing. Um, but we're we're looking at a lot of smaller players um, who know that they have to have a barcode. It's mandated by regulation, but um, it's not what they do. It's not what they're experts at. Well, the good news is they're there are companies like uh, Bantry and their software like Bartender that really understand the landscape. And we've done it before. So 
Um, so that's, you know, I think for industries that are uh, floundering a bit, wondering, you know, how they're going to meet regulations, talk to somebody who's done it before. I mean, this isn't our first rodeo. We've been there. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as interesting regulations now is, you know, in the U.S., we have this patchwork of uh, regulations for cannabis and every state is different. And it, it makes my head hurt a little bit to think about how we help them all comply. But there are there are uh, there are commonalities and and nuances. It's more it's more common and nuanced than it is radically different. Um, and again, uh, kudos to to Canada for getting the provinces in and doing that work early on. So it's a very sensible approach. And um, the, the, everyone in Canada, the Canada uh, Canada cannabis industry is so easy to work with because they have a clear set of guidelines and they understand what's going on. So um, U.S., they're great to work with, but not quite so easy. Uh, one of the things, though, that that we're seeing now, so we know pharma and medical devices um, are have really nailed down and they're sort of at the coming to the end of the um, the regulatory period where everybody's kind of got their stuff in line and, and stuff is happening appropriately. Food is the Wild West. My goodness. You know, again, everybody wants to know uh, everything about their food. And it's important, you know, a, a recall. Uh, Deloitte estimates that um, with, uh, the cost of a food recall, even uh, for a small company to a large company, the average cost is 10 million U.S. dollars. So, I mean, wow. that's not in, that's not insignificant. And small to mid-sized food uh, processors and manufacturers um, uh about 30% of them go out of business within within a couple years of a recall. So um, it, it's really important. Um, in you know the U.S. is you know we're big consumers. We're uh, the largest consumer of the food industry uh, of food. You know we're the we're the biggest target for the food industry. So what we see is that when uh, FDA makes a regulation, that it it, it becomes. Uh, very applicable to what happens in Europe and in Canada and Asia because everybody wants to sell to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, the FDA has been talking about the Food Safety Modernization Act for a really long time, since since 2011. Um, but they've now started talking about this thing called the New Era of Food Safety. And they really have nailed down the traceability requirements uh, for FSMA with this. Uh, FSMA is Food Safety Modernization Act. Um it's Section 204. They introduced it uh, in September. Um, I've, we've been involved in the public commentary uh, sessions, and uh, those sessions are being really driven by large manufacturers and processors. And, you know, the thing about the food industry is it's so fragmented. Um, the, uh, the medical devices and pharma, I mean, I feel like we're we're slowly going to one giant pharma company that, you know, that owns everything because there's been such a period of M&A. But in food, that just doesn't happen. The, you know, the other interesting thing here is that when uh, FDA talked to pharma and medical device, they provided a very specific syntax for the data that had to go on each item, right? So that, mm-hmm. you know, but in the food industry, they haven't done that. So every, uh, every pod, uh, if you will, of food supply chain could quite possibly have their own way of communicating data, which means that's not interoperable with the guy next door or the guy in across the geographic border. Mm. Um, so section four of FISMA though, uh, requires that companies be able to provide upstream data from every product that comes into a facility 
downstream data for every product that leaves within 24 hours of a recall, mock audit, any kind of request from FDA. So let's think about how that works. You know, we've got, most food manufacturers uh, tend to use more manual processes, again, because it's more fragmented. They've got people scanning stuff that goes into a... Um, into an Excel file or into a simple program. So how are you going to affect all that data and capture it within 24 hours if you're using a manual process? I mean, if if the food industry were binary, you know, if it was one product came in and then one product left, it would be an easy thing to do. But, um, you know, let's talk about a lot of Atlantic pollock fish, fished off of Newfoundland, right? Um, it could be commingled with other catches. It could be destined to go to Japan for surimi, Norway for cat food. Um, some of it could stay in Canada to be processed into frozen meals. Um, so th this goes beyond production to cold chain logistics providers, warehousers, even retailers. Um, everybody's going to have to be able to ID where things came from and where they went. Um, and again, it's not just FDA that's driving this. It's consumers. Consumers want this information. Right. Um, and and I don't see any way to do this if you have manual processes. You're going to it's you're going to have to be uh, what we call auto AIDC, auto ID and data capture barcodes, uh, maybe NFC communication, um, uh, printers, software, uh, RFID chips. It's, it's the only way that this is actually going to be able to be executed. So Elizabeth, is it is it the consumers really then that are driving like the amount of data that's available? Is it the consumer consumers that are driving the what's the what they want to see? Is that what's driving the regulations or the other way around? Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, enough said. So, yeah, so it's it's a kind of a symbiotic relationship. Uh, we see it, you know, it's interesting when it comes to these kind of initiatives, uh we see we see three ways that these uh, regulations and standards come into play. Of course, there are the geographic regulatory bodies that say these are the rule if you if you want to engage in commerce in in our jurisdiction in our country. The second is um, industry groups who you know uh, who maybe maybe for the food industry, the produce industry, they sort of smell these regulations are coming uh, coming along and. They want to help influence the policy to make sure that uh, what eventually gets decided by by government um, is something that they can work with. So in an effort to do that, they try to jump out ahead of it and put their own standards into place um, that that their um, you know that their constituents will use and abide by. And so when the regulators come along, they can say, okay, look, we're already doing this and it's working for us, and I think it will work for you. Um, the third one, though, um, and it's the one with the real power, it's um, it's retailers. It's like Walmart and Amazon. Really? Right? Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, so, you know, speaking of produce, uh, the produce traceability initiative came from, I can't remember which produce industry uh, group, but it, they had actually designed uh, a label um, that had certain elements on it and it had to be formatted a certain way. Um, and people weren't using it. It wasn't. It wasn't getting adopted, even though they were trying to get out ahead of this <clears throat> this anticipated FISMA uh, Section 204. Uh, until Walmart decided 
that they would not accept a pallet of produce into any of their facilities unless it had this label on it. And so yeah. now um, you're, you know, because for producers, it's it's not efficient to have a series of labels. Everybody just uses the, the Walmart standard. Mm -hmm. And so now if you buy your, your, your uh, corner fruit and vegetable stand, the pallets have that sticker, Kroger, Costco, and Walmart, everybody uses that sticker. And, and that's, that's how that, you know, that's what moves these, these kinds of adoptions. Wow. I worked in the CPG um, sector once upon a time and worked with the Amazon, not the Amazon, sorry, the um, Walmarts and the Costcos of the world. And yeah, the labeling requirement to a large degree set the standard for the industry. So right. that's buying, that's their buying power, right? Like yes. oh, you want to do business yep. here. This is, this is how you're going to have to roll. Yeah. Right. And, and who doesn't want to play with Walmart, right? It's, I mean, you get, that's you a, get in there and it, it's like, a, it's a volume dream, right? Yep. So yeah. We're seeing the same thing on our side because, you know, with the, with the help of bartender, we help customers uh, print labels that are going to these, uh, you know, trading partners, the Walmarts, the Costcos, and each of them have their own label requirements. Uh, but, uh, you know, I feel like uh, it, it could be a little bit challenging sometimes. Like, I feel like some of our customers sometimes are, are struggling with the label requirements. I mean, although we, we do help them with that, um, what kind of sort of best practices, Elizabeth, could you share with um, our audience to, to overcome this issue? So I... I actually um, have thought long and hard about this. And um, fortunately, I know smart people who actually know the answers to this. So once I once I stopped thinking about it and started approaching my uh, my subject matter experts internally, um, I didn't have to think about it anymore. I, ju I just I just knew. So um, I'm, you know, a little bit what I'm going to be doing right at this moment is I'm going to be reading about what they told me. I've got, a, I've got a list right here on my monitor because I, I want to make sure this is, this is really important. So many people get labeling software and, you know, it kind of looks a little bit like Microsoft Word and the label looks a little bit like a PowerPoint slide. And, um, yeah, I can put this thing on there. And, and what they end up doing is rather than leveraging the power of the software, um, they create complexities that are expensive and and end up being frustrating in the long run. So um, here's what's important. Enterprise label software can connect your label files to your existing data sources and then use business logic that's inside of our software uh, to print the right variable data on the right label at the right time. Um, Many organizations, again, they open up the program. It looks pretty intuitive, so, but so they leverage only the design component of the software. So when they need to create a new label, they open up an existing label file, substitute the appropriate data, and then save it as a new data file. Um, we even hear just horror stories of people emailing labels. So, you know, you're, you're, you're creating this vast explosion of amount of data you have to manage. What you're doing is you're treating the label file itself as the data repository. Um, you've got data storage issues. You've got cost issues. You've got security problems. Um, for companies that create a different label file for each SKU, shelf tag, or shipping address, um, you've got your what you're doing is you're creating an unmanageable pool, a library of 
thousands of static label designs and formats. Mm -hmm. um, this, pro this also, uh, it builds complexities and waste into the system. You duplicate data, it's not necessary. Uh, you can never ever implement a single source of truth data strategy because you've got that data living on a bazillion different hard drives, uh, drives across your global network. Um, so when data changes, Every individual label has to be changed. It's got to be located, opened, updated, and saved. Is that possible? Probably not. So you're going to have errant labels and wrong data out there. You know, yeah. if, if you have connected your label to your data source, not only do you have a single source of truth, but wow, what a change management miracle that is. Because when you have a change to the data, you just have to go to your master data and make the change there. And then that change is cascaded throughout your whole organization. Um, so uh, another mistake that people make is they store palette level, case label, item level uh, data um, in different label files. They often contain identical data, um, you know, like uh, package size, SKU, lot info. Um, and uh, but in different formats, you know, different size labels um, at, at, or even RFID tags. Um, so what we suggest um, is that you store them all in one file. We have a thing we call templates, which is not a template like you would uh, traditionally think of it. We those things we call sample files. It's very confusing. But mm -hmm. um, a template <laughs> uh, you can store. You can store a number of different data styles or, or formats um, and layouts and connect all of those, the palette label, the shipping label, the ingredient label, can all be tied to the same data set so mm -hmm. that it's all, you know, particularly we see this um, in pharma and medical device. Uh, there's a thing called IFU, uh, instructions for use is what it's called. Mm -hmm. And so if the wrong IFU gets in the wrong package, that's a real problem. Um, yep. But by by uh, aggregating all the different uh, label styles in one place, so they're all pulling data from the same place, um, it's a great way to reduce uh, complexity and avoid human error. So great. That Thanks is. for sharing those. Yeah, that's like so such good advice. And it's nice to know that there is a solution out there to connect because what's happening nowadays, and we were just talking about this is people are taking this time right now to invest in their businesses, they're investing in digital transformation. So you've invested so much into whether that's an ERP or, um, you know, a, a, a big sort of business system that you're putting in place. And, and then now you have these label requirements that are coming from, like you said, either the consumers or regula regulators or the trading partners. Uh, and so it's nice to know that there's a, a solution out there that connects the data source with the labeling requirements and, and, and makes it easy to use. And, you know, thanks to, 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 to bartender that's available. And, you know, we help a lot of customers with that as well. And it's, it's proven to be working very well. People, uh, enjoy it and, uh, and and it's sustainable. That's the most important thing because you're, if you're investing in digital transformation, you don't want to start you know dealing with uh, you know human error and uh, and not being able to scale your business. So that's that's amazing. We see labels everywhere and we never really think about how important they are. And I think I said at the beginning that labeling really makes the world go around, you know. And and when you start uh, considering. Uh, 
the capabilities that good labeling, good labeling software can do and, and how important it is to human safety, to efficiency of manufacturing, um, to, to, uh, to logistics providers. Um, it's, uh, it's ki- it kind of boggles the mind. I, I came at this uh, seven and a half years ago from the chemical industry, and uh, there's so many things I had never considered. And it's uh, not only am I totally geeked out about labeling and barcodes and RFID, sorry, not sorry, um, but, um, <laughs> but, but I really, um, the impact that it has on people's daily lives, uh, it's something I think about every single day. Yeah, it makes definitely. me think of something um, you said earlier on in the call, Elizabeth, and, and from my CPG days, you know, at, at some point, you know, and I, I grew up in Montreal, so I was dealing with, you know, Quebec standards because there was the language stuff and then there's the Canadian standards. And then to your point, there's when you're dealing with the Walmarts and the Costco's, there's like, what is, what do they need? You know, and at some point you're just pulling your hair out and you go like, when is enough enough already? Right. Um, and so you said, you said earlier on that, um, that potentially, BGS one's like grand plan is just to move to one, one basically set of standards. So I'm super curious when you think like, at what stage do you think we're not going to need a gun to scan labels anymore because we're going to have just gone to this one super platform? Uh, right, and and so before I, I touch on that, I do want to mention, um, you know, variable data can also include uh, languages, localizations, and translations. So, you know, if you're a brand that sells across several geographies or you need shipping labels um, because you're you're shipping to Quebec, you're shipping to the U.S., you're shipping to Central America, all that data can be stored in, in, you know, you just put the one variable data uh, field in your label and it can pull language and localization uh, data uh, depending on what you need. So that's that's pretty exciting. And actually, our latest product uh, has a bartender 2021 has a phrase library so that you can actually store phrases and it'll do translations automatically. So we're pretty dang excited about that. Um, but so, you know, when, uh, you know, how is the, uh, when are we not going to need a gun? Well, you're always going to need some kind of hardware, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think bef- before we started recording, we talked about, um, uh, barcodes traditionally are line of sight. You see, they use lasers. Um, we think about RFID as listening. So, you know, um, so uh, Lululemon, a great Canadian athletic wear retailer, has the most impeccable RFID deployment in the universe. They're really the ones who've pushed the rest of the retail sector forward in adoption of RFID. Um, the case study they published like three or four years ago, it, it just gives me a little goosebumps because it's such a beautiful deployment. Um, and they actually, they do what's called Geiger counting. So back back in the uh, back room, they have, um, they use their their listener, their RFID listener that, that listens to uh, the RFID, all the RFID tags. So uh, so the the floor associates can hone in on which exact package they need and where it is just by using this this counter. You wow. know, we we hear stories of um, well, this is actually uh, in wide use now, particularly in expensive items. Um, that as items are pushed out of the manufacturing facility into the transport method. 
there are interrogators on each side of the, the bay door that read all the RFID tags so they know where they're going um, as, as they go. So RFID is really exciting. But, you know, right now we've just started working uh, with a company called Digimark. They've been around for a little bit. Uh, they're out of Beaverton, Oregon, so they are also our neighbors just slightly to the south here in Seattle. Um, they're, they're, they call what they have a barcode, but it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, to me, it's like it's a barcode that works kind of like um, RFID in that the code is it covers the entire package. You don't wow. see the whole it. Package. It's the whole package. The whole package. It's, wow. it's tiny, barely perceptible gray dots. So you can hardly see it. That and cool. so for them, what they're doing, uh, particularly in the grocery space, is that same idea of having a scanner and being able to go stand in front of a refrigerator case and scan all the pizzas and know what's there and when the expiration dates are and, and when they should be pulled. Um, and then also one of the um, one of the interesting benefits they claim is they've actually done studies on uh, you know when you when you buy something and the the cashier has to rotate it to find the code to scan mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. um, how much time that takes and to, to just not have to find out where that code is and look for it and just zip it across the um, zip it across the scanner. Uh, it, it creates tremendous efficiencies, at least in, in that POS right. case. So um, they're they're uh, they're very. Uh, do I think the scanner is ever going to go away? No, because you always are going to need something. I mean, until we all get our own, uh, our own, you know, the, our own scanner or RFID chip. Yeah, how long, how long to wear wrapped? How long to wear wrapped with a bunch of mini dots? And they're scanning me every step I take. I don't know about anybody else, but, uh, you know, when they start giving those RFID chips out, I am first in line. I can't keep track of my office uh, okay. card key, right? So I just want it right there so I can beep and get in the office, my health information, my credit card. I Sign me up. No more. I will never carry a purse again. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if it's going to make your life easier, why not? It's, it seems pretty compelling, right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, yep. in all seriousness, you know, there's there's been for years conversations around the ethics of chipping people, right? And what that yeah. means. And I saw this, you know, I have a Fitbit and I was trying to figure out, like, you know, I, I updated the <laughs> software. And so, Elizabeth, I don't know if you're getting like every time I go and use it, it's like, do you want to turn on your GPS so that we're following you all the time? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. Why does my fitness app need to know? Like if I'm going for a run or I'm doing a workout, like, you know, then. Yeah. But why do you need to know where I am all the time? Anyways, I thought there was a bug. So I went into an online forum and I was like, well, how do I turn this off? And people are like crazy. And then half the people are well, I, i'm just making up numbers here but like there's a segment there were like dude who cares everybody knows everything about us now anyways like who cares and the other yeah. segment is like why does my fitness app need to know like if i'm in my bathroom or i'm at the restaurant like <laughs> right. you know, get i want my privacy but i think i mean it's just sort of an anecdotal story but you know i'm a strategist by trade so i'm thinking like years out like it's going to be like the civil debate that's going to happen around yep privacy and 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 it's it's also i wouldn't necessarily say age related because um ageism is i'm less a fan of that as i'm it's more about attitude right like some people don't like privacy Ugh, we don't have any anymore who cares 
you know, and other people are like, exactly, we hardly have any anymore. So I'm going to hold on to the shreds that I have. Left. <laughs> Anyways, I'm on a tangent. No, but, uh, for sure. No. Th- and this is this is very germane to what's happening right now with contact yeah. tracing for COVID. Um, yes. So exactly. I have exactly. I have. I have the app on my phone that'll let me know if I've been in acceptable range uh, you know, or danger range with someone who has COVID. And so many people that I know are mortified that I've enabled that, um, even though it's not really pinging the network. It's, it's creating its own Bluetooth network. Of, of So it doesn't know where I am. It just knows that I've been near people that, that have these things. But, you know, my take on that is w- wait till these people hear about Facebook. You know, the people that are upset about it, <laughs> wait till they, right? you know, 40, the 46 the states that are, that are, uh, um, bringing them to court. No, 46 yeah, states that have made well, official uh, Yeah. Complaints. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. And, and didn't they mind, just like recommend they need to disband? They need to like have some power taken from them. I think Congress just said that but anyways. Yeah. Uh, I think that, yeah, I, I, um, I, you know, I'm a marketer and, I hate to say this, it's not the government tracking you that you need to be afraid of. It's the marketers. It's it's us. We know yep. we know everything. People have no idea how much people know. So um again with the with the we've we've delved off into a, a very Definitely interesting a, and current a, topic, Kevin. Yeah. A discussion we can have maybe uh, a year from now, uh, once yeah. we we have a better idea of what's going on in this world and and how yeah. the how how we're uh, we're we're taking care of this this privacy issue. But Elizabeth, yeah. uh, speaking with you has been an absolute blast. Um, this has been really amazing. Learned so much. I've uh, learned I, so much. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. yeah. We wanted to give you an opportunity, though. Um, we wanted to give you an opportunity so that you can speak to our audience and uh, kind of share with them where they can reach you, where they can learn more about Bartender. Uh, so tell us how they can get in touch with you. Sure. And, you know, I am really uh, I'm always excited. I mean, I talk. Obviously, I'm excited. I, I, I apologize for some of that unbridled enthusiasm. It's a little weird, I know. Um, but, uh, I, you know, some of the new applications and trends and regulations that we've talked about, every time I speak at a conference or I do a webinar, uh, people contact me and they have new ideas and things I've never thought of uh, uh, about things I've been thinking about for a long time. So I really, um, I, uh, you know, Phil and Teresa, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. And to those of you who have gotten this far in this podcast, I encourage you please to contact me um, if you have any ideas, if there's stuff you'd like to talk about. If you think our software can help you, we can have that conversation too. Um, But, you know, mostly I'm interested in your ideas. Uh, My email address is esinclair, that's E-S-I-N-C-L-A-I-R, at Seagull Scientific, and we're seagull like the bird, um, seagullscientific.com. Um, and you can find out more about our product at uh, com. And if you're interested in the nuts and bolts about how the product works, check com. Fantastic. Thank you again for Thank taking the time so out much. of your day. Thanks, Thank guys. It's been it. a pleasure. And we hope oh, to no, have you back you. again soon. <laughs> Enjoy the rest Bye-bye. of your day. Thank Bye. you. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. 
Listening to the New Level Podcast, where humans talk about automation. We bring you industry experts and share new ideas that help elevate your business. Join your hosts, Philip Aguib and Teresa Foreman, on the journey of automation technology.